everyone. It's Agata here. I'm joined today by my co-hosts Kat and Nastya, and we have a very, very sad but incredibly important episode about Crimea. So Nastya, this is your episode, so take it away. So I started thinking about this episode a while ago, back when the war began in February. And this is quite personal for me because Crimea used to be my main beat, actually, when I just entered journalism. So I paid really close attention to all of the oppressions that were happening there, and especially against the Crimean Tatar minority. So when the war began, I really wanted to talk to someone there about whether life has changed for them and how. But immediately that proved to be more difficult than before. So I remember texting my friend Alona. Uh, she's also a journalist who is very close with the Crimean Tatar community. And she basically said, you know, listen, the chances of you finding someone who'd be willing to talk openly right now are close to zero. So I thought of something that's just been stuck in my head for months. So since 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, of course, any dissent has been crushed and targeted. That's, that's nothing new. Crimea has always been even more tightly controlled than Russia, in fact. But since February 24th, the peninsula has been under a very tight lid, like a covering, where minimal, if any information, can get in or out. And so, if before the war, the problem was being anti-Kremlin or pro-Ukrainian, now you're being targeted not only for opposing the occupation, but also opposing the war. So, the repressions and the control almost doubled. Yes, exactly. And so I wanted to understand what that looks like. And months later, I managed to get in touch with a guy who in this episode will go by the name Sasha. So Sasha is a Ukrainian in his 30s who has lived in Crimea before and after 2014 when the Russians occupied it. And he's still there now, so we won't be revealing anything about his real name or location for the sake of his safety. Okay, so Sasha. He works in the municipal government at one of the lowest positions, so something like a secretary or a clerk. Of course, the first question I asked him was, you know, why didn't you leave? And from the conversations we've had, it was very clear that, you know, the guy has no sympathies towards Russia. Um, you know, he says he's been uncomfortable all these years living under a dictatorship, which he opposes ideologically. But every time he's tried leaving... He told me something would always go wrong. Something always didn't work out. So, for example, his family, his parents, they all live in Crimea too. And they've sort of just gotten accustomed to the status quo. And they'd always try to talk him out of moving away because it's too far, too dangerous, etc. And they're also working class families. So it was either, you know, too difficult to leave financially speaking, or he was worried he wouldn't be able to find a job or a place to stay. And other times he had some issues with his documents as well, and he thought he wouldn't be let through to cross into Ukraine. In any case, he says he doesn't support the occupation, and actually, since he started working for the municipal government, he's tried to use his position in a sort of partisan-like way. So he'd send photos of documents to people who knew in Ukraine, myself included, and that's why he was so open to talking to me as well. We talked about many things. But what startled me the most is probably a complete lack of trust and a sense of community that people in Crimea have. No one trusts anybody because someone is always watching you. It's very quiet here because people are scared. In a way, you feel at home among strangers, but a stranger among your own. You're just genuinely scared. 
You're scared that someone's going to rat you out, your own friends, or somebody else. There's just a colossal lack of trust. On Crimean social media groups, you will rarely find pro-Ukrainian comments, because that immediately means checkups from the authorities. You gotta be checked, because what if you're some fascist, a Nazi, a Banderite, etc., etc. This is so terribly sad. I mean, just imagine fearing for your life and not being able to freely gather, you know, with your circle of friends and share your thoughts, or let alone even having that circle of friends. Belonging to a community is one of the primary needs of, you know, literally any human being. Yeah, but also, even if you try to ignore the politics somehow, that epidemic lack of trust must affect other areas of your life too. I mean, how does one build any relationships in an environment like that? Yeah, exactly. It's difficult. It's very difficult to find, let's say, sympathizers or like-minded people because you're scared to even look for them. You only make one mistake and it's over. At the very minimum, it can cost you your job. Your reputation can be damaged. They'll start pressuring your family members. It'll be like a chain reaction. Because in Crimea, everyone knows everybody. You have many acquaintances, so one thing will lead to another, and first they will punish you, and then they'll come for those who are in your close circle. It was very difficult to hear, because he told me that he don't only risk your own safety, your job, your whole life basically, but also the life of your loved ones, and that's of course a very serious consideration that prevents many Ukrainians from resisting the occupation. It also, you know, in a way, makes it difficult for us as the outsiders to understand the local political climate and opinion because people simply don't want to talk to you and they won't show themselves. We know what happens. There was this one case recently when a Crimean nurse and an activist, Irina Danilovich, was accused of carrying explosives, a typical accusation in Crimea, actually. And of course, the whole case is obviously fabricated. Wait, so what happened to her? Why would they go after a nurse? So Irina worked as a nurse in one of Crimea's resorts. And at the same time, she worked with Injur Media. It's a local outlet for independent Crimean journalists. And also with the Crimean Process, an initiative through which local activists advocated for justice in Crimean courts and shed light on the illegal practices and politically motivated cases. For those outlets, Irina wrote a lot about the unjust treatment of medical professionals in Crimea, and human rights abuses in general. So during the pandemic, for example, she wrote about how the occupants didn't provide the promised compensation to doctors who worked with COVID patients. So she was clearly inconvenient for the regime. Yeah, exactly. So on April 29th, she was abducted. She was just on her way home, and as she was standing at a bus stop, four men in civilian clothes pulled up and pushed her into a car and drove away. And so she basically just was gone for two weeks. Her family, her friends, her lawyer, nobody knew where she was. Later, we learned that Russians put her into a cellar in one of the FSB's building in Simferopol. So for two weeks, she was gone off the face of the earth, and then her lawyer finally found her and learned that Irina was suspected of buying and carrying explosives. What evidence do they have to accuse her of this? They said they found 200 grams of TNT, the, the explosive chemical, tucked in inside the case of her glasses. And now, when they first abducted her, they searched the purse and filmed it, and of course didn't find anything. 
So the Russians say that they found it later, while Irina's lawyers, of course, say that the FSB planted the evidence. Well, that sure as hell looks pretty fabricated. Oh yeah, that's a textbook Crimean fabricated, politically motivated case. They've planted explosives into dozens of people's houses, bags, and so on. And I mean, she later told her lawyer that when she was in the cellar, the FSB was threatening her to make her confess. So they'd put a sack over her head and say that she has to choose a forest or a prison, as in threatening to murder her somewhere in a forest. They also threatened her to take her to Mariupol, actually, where she would, quote unquote, get lost. Christ, I mean, I'd assume that someone who has actual evidence against you wouldn't have to use torture for a confession. Yeah, exactly. And so this is sort of how it goes. You're inconvenient for the regime. You read a few articles, you you know, like a few comments in line, and they come for you. And you know they might, so you either choose to censor yourself or keep resisting, risking your life. It's a very typical occupation story. Speaking of resistance, it's interesting, though, that the Crimean Tatar community on the peninsula seems to have been nothing but scared this whole time. Aren't they still very outspoken against the Kremlin? And they've seen so many raids and arrests too. Yes. So this, for me, is the most inspiring part of the story, actually. And first of all, for those of our listeners who have no idea who they are, Crimean Tatars are a Ukrainian ethnic minority, native to Crimea. And because of Russia, of course, their history is just tragedy after tragedy. So in 1783, the Crimean Hanad was annexed and occupied by the Russian Empire, so many Crimean Tatars fled towards the Ottomans. And then in 1944, the Soviets officially deported around 200,000 Crimean Tatars within days, taking them mainly to Uzbekistan, but also Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and some other Far East areas in Russia. Other estimates, which come mainly from Crimean Tatar groups, say that the number was twice that, actually, at least 400,000. And if you take the higher estimate, that's over 90% of the population at the time. Moreover, around half of those who were deported died during the deportation. So whichever estimate you take, it is truly a tragedy of a huge scale. Ukraine and a few other countries recognize this as genocide. So then, decades later, the Soviet Union falls apart and Crimean Tatars start to come back. They build their lives in Crimea again, but in 2014, Russia invades and annexes Crimea, the story we know, and many Crimean Tatars have to flee again because now they, their homes are under attack for the third time. Now, many fled, but a large number stayed as a matter of principle. Their community is actually the most active part of Crimean civil society. They're all fiercely pro-Ukrainian and anti-Kremlin, And they've paid a huge price for this in the form of illegal raids, fabricated criminal cases, constant surveillance, and so on. So for context, there have been at least 247 political prisoners in Crimea since 2014. And 177 of those are Crimean Tatars. And as of now, at least 119 of them are either behind bars or have some other restrictions like probation. Yeah, so many of them have been disproportionately affected by Russia's crackdown on freedom. I'd assume, you know, they lay low. Yes, exactly. You'd think that, but they're actually the most consistently active. There's this very famous initiative called Crimean Solidarity. They were founded and are now led by Crimean Tatars who who advocate for human rights in Crimea. They're the ones who are at the forefront of the anti-Kremlin battle there. 
Their activists cover all house raids, all court hearings, all protests. I actually suggest our listeners check them out. They have an English Facebook page. And Sasha actually also told me that they're the only ones on the peninsula who he trusts, without a doubt, 100%. So, of course, I had to try and speak to someone within that community that I know. I know a lot of activists there. So I reached out to a few of my friends, one of whom was open to talking only about repressions against the Tatars, but not the war. They said it was just too risky for them right now, and that's fine. But another one, who is one of the leading Crimean Tatar voices there, agreed. Of course, we'll keep them anonymous for the sake of their safety, but I'll refer to them as Aliye. We haven't spoken in a while, so I asked her how she was doing and what has changed on the peninsula since February 24th. Now, an important note, when the war began, Russia introduced a new law in Crimea, and and also in Russia itself, Article 207.3, which punishes, quote-unquote, public dissemination of deliberately false information about the actions of the Russian armed forces. In practice, that means that you risk spending 10 to 15 years in prison for saying literally anything critical about the Russian army. And now, when it looks like everyone is laying low, In reality, there's a good number of anti-war protests, but not all of them are covered publicly in the media because people are scared of continued repressions. I know of at least nine criminal cases based on this new law, Article 207.3, under which you can be thrown to prison for 10 to 15 years, and also of at least 20 administrative cases that are also connected to anti-war protests. Are those also Crimean Tatars, or...? The vast majority of them are students, actually, young Ukrainians that live in Crimea. Many of them protested against the war in spring and had to spend days in police stations and detention centers for that. Many protesters also noticed later that they were being surveilled. Despite all this public narrative that everyone here has long agreed with the regime and was happy when Russia showed up in 2014, people in Crimea live a closed, kind of introverted life. And Russia's special services understand very well that there are these specific social groups in Crimea which scare them, so they constantly keep them under control. Those are Crimean Tatars, all of them, because Russia sees them as this mono-ethnic danger due to their position on what happened in 2014. But she also said that there are many outspoken Ukrainians, they're just not as well united into one resistance front like the Crimean Tatars. So they're kind of disseminated in small groups all over the peninsula. Another problem now, though, is the fact that in comparison to what's happening in mainland Ukraine, so think Bucha, Mariupol, the fight for Donbass that's been very bloody, almost everything that happens on the Crimean Peninsula seems like a much lesser problem, a problem for another time. The sheer amount of destruction and suffering in Ukraine just overwhelms the newsfeed. That's terrible, because I guess for Crimean activists, public exposure in the media was their main leverage to be able to demand any justice. Exactly. The media was one of their only ways to get through to Ukrainian politicians, you know, to publicize the hearings, to demand prisoner swaps. But now all of that is naturally on pause because priorities are very different. So the crackdown on Crimea increased, but the ways to resist it decreased substantially. Yes, and that's the tragedy of it. On a slightly different note, I just remembered Sasha telling you that you won't see any supportive comments for Ukraine online in Crimean social media groups because you'd be targeted. 
But we do see a lot of pro-Russian comments, not necessarily in Crimea, but in general, coming from those that live on Russian and Russian-controlled territory. Did Aliyah tell you anything about those people? Yes. So she said the vast majority of such publications are, and I quote, completely involuntary. She said that many of her friends who work like Sasha in some sort of local government institutions have been given orders to publish statements of support, participate in demonstrations to support the army, comment under photos and so on. And their bosses actually go and check all that, keeping track of everyone's online presence and reporting it to whoever is above them. And so if you don't follow the orders, you'll just get fired. So we basically have no way of actually estimating people's opinion there. Yeah, because, I mean, you can, you can spot a Russian bot pretty easily. But if it's a regular person who has a normal social media presence and then suddenly comes out as pro-Russian, how the hell do we know if that's genuine? And it's the same with students, too. Aliyah's daughter, who studies in Crimea, uh, told her that students who are class representatives, what we'd call starosta, asked everyone in their classes to post messages of support to the Kremlin and the Russian military. And so if they don't follow that, they must at least appear neutral online. So the kids were literally asked to delete anything that could even mildly suggest that they support the other side. The framing was... If you don't want to ruin your future, take care of your social media pages. Jesus, is there anything that's not fabricated in Russia? That's a really great question, Kat. But at the same time, there is also a lot of hope. All this talk about the possibility, however small it is, of taking back Crimea militarily has revived the hope of people in Crimea that maybe, finally, this time, something's going to be different. Maybe there is a chance that Crimea can be free and Ukrainian again. So they keep fighting. Well, most of them. If everyone leaves Crimea, I mean, for many, leaving seems like the easiest choice. But in reality, if everyone who's pro-Ukrainian leaves this territory, who's going to be fighting for it? And who's going to be asserting any rights to this territory if no one will be left here? So many people stayed. They kept living there, enduring the repressions, sacrificing something, being ready for arrests. We, we owe a lot to these people. Yeah, we really do. I mean, they're some of the best people this country has. I guess all we have left now is talking about them and talking about this and not forgetting that there are hundreds, if not thousands of Ukrainians who are risking their lives on a daily basis. So we have something to come back to when the territory is finally deoccupied. Honestly, it's been incredibly heartbreaking hearing this story. Um, Nasi, you've done an amazing job, you know, covering this topic. Um, but I think that for all of us, Crimea is such a soft spot. Um, you know, we all get incredibly emotional thinking about it because we all vividly remember Crimea before the annexation and seeing what has been happening there for all these years since then. It's just so, so, so sad because it makes you feel as if, you know, we're losing it. Um, I really don't want to believe that. And, you know, I'm such a strong believer of the fact that Crimea will become Ukraine and Crimea will return back to Ukraine. Um, you know, and especially what's going on now, at least we at least now have some hope of getting it back. But I just really think about a lot of the times I think about what we're going to have to deal with post factum. Um, that Crimea is not the same 
Crimea that, you know, we used to vacation with, with our family when we were young, it's not ever going to be the same Crimea as it has, you know, as, as it's kind of become embodied in our childhood photographs um, and in our vivid memories of, you know, the beach, the sun, the sea. And there is a lot we're going to have to deal with. Um, there's a lot we're going to have to come to terms with, and there's a lot that we're going to have to fix. Um, and I think that for everybody, when Crimea returns to Ukraine, it's obviously going to be an incredibly overwhelming feeling, but it's also going to be a feeling of, okay, we're going to have to have, well, we're going to have to deal with a lot of things now that it's, it's back. And I do think about that a lot. So I think for everyone, it's going to be a very bittersweet feeling. Um, but I am still waiting for this day. I already have it clearly in, you know, pictured in my mind when Crimea is back to being Ukraine. And I'm sure, you know, either way, we're, there's going to be a lot of difficulties, but I think we're going to be ready to face them. And we're going to have to address a lot of these things, um, which is why it's very important that, you know, we're talking about them now. That's the least we can do, really. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening.